This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. I'm Paul Newton. I'm the director of the Cambridge Assessment Network Division, and we're the division that's responsible for bringing you the programme. I'm very pleased to be able to welcome and to be able to introduce to you uh, Dr Randy Bennett. Uh, Randy is Distinguished Scientist in the Research and Development Division at ETS, and that's in New Jersey. He's worked there since 1979, um, and he's received two major awards, the ETS Social uh, Senior Scientist Award in 1996 um, and ETS Career Achievement Award in 2005. Uh, So we've got a very distinguished speaker with us here today. Since the 1980s, Randy's been conducting research on integrating advances in cognitive science, in technology and in measurement, um, aimed at creating a new generation of assessments, I guess. Um, Today, though, Randy's going to be talking to you about the meaning and basis of formative assessment, uh, and in particular, he's going to be taking a critical look at that. Um, Critical look at the claims which have been made, made for formative assessment, not all of which seem to be holding true. So, Randy, I'd like to hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here, as uh, always, with friends and uh, colleagues at Cambridge Assessment. If you've been following at all uh, the U.S. education news and probably most of you haven't, uh, you'll know that we're just about to enter into a period of what could be very significant educational reform. And that reform is being spurred by very large federal investments, uh, including ones that are directed at educational assessment. And among the Obama administration's funding priorities for that reform... Uh, are ones directed at the development and large-scale implementation of formative assessment. In today's talk, I'm going to focus on issues that I think need to be addressed for uh, those investments to be effective in the U.S. context. However, I believe that uh, most of these issues you'll find to be uh, far more general ones with implications that go well beyond uh, that context. I've uh, divided the presentation into several interrelated topics, which I've called the definitional effectiveness domain, measurement, professional development, and systems issues. So... When we get back, what you'll see is uh, that outline uh, for my talk. And I'm going to spend most of my time on effectiveness and definition. And I'll do that because I think those are among the more critical problems that need to be addressed with respect to uh, formative assessment. And then after running through those topics, I'll summarize the main points of the talk. So I'm going to begin with definition and start with the question, what exactly is formative assessment? 
you may know that the distinction between the summative and formative roles was first proposed in the context of program evaluation by Michael Scriven in 1967. For Scriven, summative evaluation provided information to judge the overall value of an educational program, whereas formative evaluation was targeted at facilitating program improvement. It was Benjamin Bloom who, using the very same terminology, made a similar distinction, but this time with respect to students. For Bloom, summative evaluation was used to judge what the learner had achieved at the end of a course or program, and formative evaluation was intended to provide feedback and correctives at each stage in the teaching-learning process. Over the years, much work has been directed at elaborating Bloom's distinction, especially in Australia by Roy Sadler and, of course, here through members of the Assessment Reform Group. Even so, the essence of this distinction holds today, though the terminology has changed the formative assessment to connote a focus on students instead of programs. Perhaps more interesting from a definitional perspective is that with its recent popularization in U.S. education, the concept has become quite confused. According to the September 17, 2007 edition of Education Week, the test industry is split over formative assessment. So much so, Ed Week reports that testing expert Rick Stiggins says he stopped using the term. The split referenced by Ed Week has on one side of it those who believe formative assessment refers to an instrument, a diagnostic test, an interim or benchmark assessment, or an item bank from which teachers might compose such tests. Formative assessments of this kind will typically produce one or more scores, often claimed to have diagnostic value, and will generally require cycle times more suited to instructional units and marking periods than to daily lessons. Not surprisingly, this view of formative assessment is very popular among test publishers because it represents something they understand and know how to provide and sell. Examples include the Pearson Progress Assessment Series, CTB McGraw-Hill's Acuity, and the ETS Formative Assessment Bank, shown here, which is pretty much just a collection of test items. The other side of this split, populated more by educators and researchers than by test publishers, is the view that formative assessment is not a test but a process, a position that Jim Popham, among many others, has taken. In this view, the process produces not so much a score as a qualitative insight into student understanding. This camp further argues that the distinguishing characteristic is when the results are actually used to adapt the teaching to meet student needs. Such adaptation will typically occur over much shorter cycles within or between lessons. These ideas are brought together in a recent definition promulgated by the U.S. Council of Chief State School Officers, which is similar to the many of the definitions uh, you see in uh, Black and William and other uh, assessment reform group literature, and goes as follows. Formative assessment is a process used by teachers and students during instruction that provides feedback to adjust ongoing teaching and learning to improve students' achievement of intended instructional 
outcomes. The popularization of this position is that as long as the results are used to change instruction, virtually any instrument may be used formatively, regardless of its original intended purpose. And indeed, you'll see uh, quotes to uh, this effect uh, in uh, that same literature. Taken to their extremes, however, I think that each of these positions is, is really a bit of an oversimplification. It's an oversimplification to define formative assessment solely uh, as an instrument because even the most carefully constructed instrument is unlikely to be effective instructionally if the process surrounding its use is flawed. Similarly, if it's, it's an oversimplification to define it exclusively as a process, since even the most carefully thought-out process is unlikely to be effective if the instrumentation or methodology being used in that process is not well-suited to the purpose. Process cannot somehow rescue unsuitable instrumentation, nor can instrumentation save an unsuitable process. As a consequence, I would argue that a strong conceptualization of formative assessment needs to give careful attention to each component, both process and uh, instrumentation, and how they work together to promote uh, learning. On an earlier slide, it was reported that Rick Stiggins has stopped using the term, presumably because it's lost meaning. Many advocates of the process view uh, prefer instead to use assessment for learning to signal formative assessment and assessment of learning to mean summative assessment because these newer terms are felt to be more descriptive. From a definitional perspective, however, this substitution is highly problematic because it essentially absolves summative assessment of any responsibility whatsoever for supporting learning, which is silly. Further, this terminology also potentially leads to oversimplifying what is in fact a more complex relationship. The relationship is more complex because if carefully crafted, summative assessments should fulfill their primary purpose of documenting what it is students know and can do, but should also by careful design successfully meet a secondary purpose of supporting learning in at least two ways. First, as Laurie Shepard argues, if the content format and design of the summative test offer a sufficiently rich domain representation, then preparing for that test ought to be a valuable learning experience. Second, the summative test may be able to provide a limited type of formative information, pointing teachers toward areas and students of concern upon which they should follow up. Notice that I don't claim that any summative assessment can support learning effectively, only those that are designed to fulfill that secondary purpose. By the same token, well-designed and implemented formative assessment ought to suggest how instruction should be modified, as well as suggest to the teacher what students know and can do. So rather than reifying this simplistic equation, as I think too many advocates do, my preference is to believe we can design assessment systems where summative tests, besides fulfilling their primary purpose, routinely provide some information useful for learning, and formative assessments routinely add to the teacher's overall judgments of student achievement. Formative assessment, then, is probably not best conceived as either a test or a process, 
but some combination of process and purposefully designed methodology or instrumentation. Also, calling formative assessment by some other name just exacerbates rather than resolves the definitional issue. But why is definition so important in the first place? Definition is important because if we can't clearly define it, we can't document its effectiveness. Part of that documentation needs to be an evaluation of whether the formative assessment was implemented as intended, which we can't possibly know if we don't know what was supposed to be implemented. If we can't clearly define it, we can't meaningfully summarize across effectiveness studies because we won't know which studies to include in our summary. And if we can't define it, we can't transport it to our own context. How will we know what characteristics to attend to in making the transport from one implementation to the next? For a meaningful definition of formative assessment, I think we need at least three things. A conceptual framework that identifies the characteristics and components of the thing we're calling formative assessment and the rationale for each of those components. A theory of action that postulates how these characteristics and components work together to create some desired outcome and a concrete instance that illustrates what formative assessment looks like and how it might work in a real setting. In this regard, the Keeping Learning on Track, or KLT, program that uh, Dylan William developed is an interesting example because it provides all three, a conceptual framework, a theory of action, and a concrete instance to illustrate at least one type of formative assessment. I want to devote some time to describing that program, not to endorse it, but simply to help highlight some key issues in formative assessment. The conceptual framework revolves around what Dylan calls one big idea and five key strategies. The big ideas of students and teachers using evidence to adapt teaching and learning to meet immediate learning needs minute to minute and day by day. The five key strategies may be familiar to many of you. They're sharing learning expectations, questioning, feedback, self-assessment, and peer assessment. These strategies are implemented through teacher and student use of a large catalog of techniques, including ones like three stars and a wish and traffic lights. And three stars and a wish, to give you an idea of what this is about, students exchange work, and each student is expected to identify three things he or she likes about his or her peer's work, and one thing that he or she wishes could be better. In traffic lights, all students in the class have three cups of different colors, green, yellow, and red, and at periodic, at times during the lesson, the teacher asks students to indicate whether or not they understand, or they're unsure, uh, the concepts that the teacher is trying to get across. Green, I do, red, I don't, yellow, I'm not sure. It's worth pointing out that these five key strategies and their associated techniques are intended to be domain-independent ones. It it doesn't matter if it's math, reading, science, history. With links to cognitive scientific theory, particularly that segment of the field concerned with learning through social interaction, sharing expectations, questioning, feedback, peer assessment, self-assessment, 
are all intended to develop internal, help students develop internal standards for their work, reflect upon it, and ultimately take ownership of learning. The theory of action is described in this logic model, which is read from left to right. You may not be able to see the components of it, but it's not all that critical that you do. Just get the basic idea. In broad strokes, the components shown on the left are postulated to cause changes in teacher practice, which is the middle area, that in turn influence student behavior and increase achievement, the area shown on the right portion of the diagram. So this is essentially the theory of how the outcomes of improved student achievement are produced by the components of the program. The KLT components are focused on training teachers in the use of formative assessment. The components include both materials and facilitated events. One of the events is a workshop for school staff who will support local teachers by helping them establish a learning community for themselves. The materials include 16 modules that form a two-year curriculum for use by these teacher learning communities and a guidebook for the learning community leaders. The Keeping Learning on Track program might be seen as an attempt by Dylan William and his colleagues to give some substantive definition and concrete direction to what many felt had the potential to become an empty fad. What provided that potential was a surge in interest, certainly among U.S. educators, that was in turn sparked by very strong claims for effectiveness, which brings us to our second issue. The most widely cited source for these strong claims is almost certainly the pair of 1998 papers published by Paul Black and Dylan William, both in of King's College. Inside the black box is a brief position piece that appeared in the journal Phi Delta Kappen and was later made into that black pamphlet that you guys often see around here. That article summarizes a lengthy, meticulous review, Assessment and Classroom Learning, that was published the same year in the journal Assessment in Education. One of the other articles has been used routinely to undergird claims for the effectiveness of formative assessment. So, for example, one highly respected U.S. testing expert writes, based on their meta-analysis, Black and William report effect sizes of between 0.4 and 0.7 in favor of students taught in classrooms where formative assessment was employed. If you're unfamiliar with the concept of effect size, this claim, if you were to generalize it, would essentially double the average growth U.S. school children in the upper primary to lower secondary grades would be expected to make on standardized tests in a school year. So it's not a trivial claim. A second expert, also well-respected, states, English researchers Paul Black and Dylan William recently published the results of a comprehensive meta-analysis and synthesis of more than 40 controlled studies of the impact of improved classroom assessment on student success. This author goes on to cite the same effect sizes as claimed on the previous slide. This quote comes from 1999, just the year after the Black and William papers were published. But look at this 2006 quote, again, by the same author. Black and William, in their 1998 Watershed Research Review of more than 250 studies 
from around the world on the effect of classroom assessment, report gains of a half to a full standard deviation. So the number of studies has grown from 40 to 250, and the effect size claim has increased from what might be called small to medium to what might now be considered medium to large. And in this quote from the same 2006 article, it stated that Bloom and his students made extensive use of classroom assessment for learning and reported subsequent gains in student test performance of one to two standard deviations. A stronger claim still, and one that if generalized would now be roughly three to six times average annual U.S. student growth. Similar claims are made by a third expert on this presentation slide from a 2007 assessment conference which I found on the Internet. Note that the effect size claims here attributed to Black and William are the same expanded ones we've encountered a few slides back from a different author. Effect sizes are not the only metric in which impact claims have been made. The same basic assertions appear phrased in terms of improving student test performance, a given number of percentile points in the achievement distribution, increasing student learning by some number of months or years, or even moving countries who performed middling in international assessments like PISA and TIMS to the top of the pack. So the essential argument put forth by these and many other advocates is that empirical research proves formative assessment causes medium to large achievement gains and that these results come from trustworthy sources, including rigorous meta-analysis and noteworthy individual studies. Well, let's take a closer look. We'll start with the idea of meta-analysis because it's been so frequently cited in the effectiveness claims to imply methodological rigor. For example, in a three-page book section entitled The Black and William Meta-Analysis, Jim Popham uses the term 12 times, so that's four times per page. If you're not familiar with it, meta-analysis was originally conceived as a method for describing the empirical results observed in research literature, though it's since been elaborated for inferential purposes. In its simplest form, Meta-analysis is a pooling of results from a set of comparable studies that yields one or more summary statistics, including what's commonly called an effect size, typically computed for experimental studies as the difference between the treatment group and control group means divided by the standard deviation or spread of scores. A commonly cited classification of effect sizes is that 0.2 is small, 0.5 is medium, 0.8 is large. Two standard deviations would be gargantuan. But like any method, meta-analysis can produce meaningless results. So caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. The results of meta-analysis probably should be considered suspect when, for example, studies are too disparate in topic to make summarization meaningful. That is, you're comparing apples and oranges. Multiple effects too often come from the same study or author. So one author or study has a lot of effects, and they're all corrupted by the same design flaw. And no accounting for such violations of independence, including lots of effects from 
small number of studies, is made in the meta-analysis. When study characteristics like technical quality or datedness are not considered, or when the meta-analysis itself is not published so that methods used are unavailable for critical review. In this regard, a major concern with the original Black and William review is that the research covered in the assessment and education article is too disparate to be summarized meaningfully through meta-analysis. That article includes studies related to feedback, student goal orientation, self-perception, peer assessment, self-assessment, teacher choice of assessment task, teacher questioning behavior, teacher use of tests and mastery learning systems. That collection of studies is simply too diverse to be sensibly combined and summarized in a single effect size statistic. And more people might know that fact if they carefully read the original article. On page 53, in a section titled, No Meta-Analysis, Black and William say the following. It might be seen desirable for a a review of this type to attempt a meta-analysis of the quantitative studies that have been reported. Individual quantitative studies which look at formative assessment as a whole do exist, although the number with adequate and comparable quantitative rigor would be on the order of 20 at most. However, whilst these studies are rigorous within their own frameworks and purposes, the underlying differences between them are such that any amalgamations of their results would have little meaning. In their review article, then, Black and William report no meta-analysis of their own doing nor any quantitative result of their own making. The confusion may occur because in their Phi Delta Kappen position paper, they do in fact attribute the range of effect sizes to formative assessment. However, no source for those values is ever given, so where they came from uh, is not entirely clear. As such, these effect sizes are not the quantitative result, meta-analytical or otherwise, of the Black and William Review, but rather a misinterpretation that has essentially become the educational equivalent of urban legend. Even so, the review does provide a very valuable and supportive qualitative synthesis, though of a very broad array of literatures and not of any single well-defined class of treatments we might call formative assessment. Whereas the Black and William articles are probably the most frequent derivation for the claimed large impact of formative assessment. As suggested earlier, there are a number of other commonly cited sources, but each such source raises concerns that call the size of the claimed effects into question. Let's start with the Bloom studies that reputedly found effects of between one and two standard deviations, somewhere between large and huge. That claim comes from a 1984 article called The Two Sigma Problem, the search for methods of group instruction as effective as one-to-one tutoring. The article is based largely on dissertations by Bloom's students. In 1987, Robert Slavin published a comprehensive literature review which included those very same studies. Slavin concluded the following. Bloom's claim that mastery learning can improve achievement by more than one standard deviation is based on brief, small, artificial studies that provided additional instructional time to the experimental classes and not 
to controls. In longer-term and larger studies with experimenter-made measures, effects of group-based mastery learning are much closer to one-quarter standard deviation. And in studies with standardized measures, there's no indication of any positive effect at all. The one-sigma claim is misleading and potentially damaging, as it may lead researchers to belittle true, replicable, and generalizable achievement effects in the more realistic range of 20 to 50% of a standard deviation. A second commonly cited source by Nyquist is relatively recent. It's called the benefits of reconstruing feedback as a larger system of formative assessment, a meta-analysis. The relevance of this source to the primary and secondary context can be immediately questioned because although rarely noted in advocates' invocations, it focuses on the college-level population. Second, the study is an unpublished master's thesis, and as such, it's not generally available. You can't find it on the Internet. The fact that it is unpublished lessens its value as backing for the general efficacy of formative assessment, since it's not been subjected to peer review, a hallmark of the scientific process, nor has it been readily accessible for purposes of challenge from the field and rejoinder by the author. As we've already seen, accepting at face value what someone else said an investigator found can be a misleading proposition. Finally, as a master's thesis, it's very impressive, but for serious meta-analytical research, we really should be looking elsewhere. Two individual studies by Mizells and by Rodriguez have also figured among advocates' evidentiary sources. Of note is that both of these studies were observational, so it's not possible to rule out alternative explanations for treatment effects. The design of the Mizell study is of particular concern because it appears to have used the volunteer treatment group, ostensibly more motivated than the comparison group, and to have collected data in classrooms that may have been simultaneously implementing other curricular innovations. No accounting was apparently made for either the potential selection bias or the confound with other innovations. So defensible assertions about the impact of formative assessment are very difficult to make from this study. In keeping with the nature of an observational investigation, Rodriguez is appropriately modest in his claims about the effects of classroom assessment. The study's analysis is, however, quite complicated, and no clear interpretation is really possible regarding a cause-effect relationship between formative assessment and student achievement. Further, the only variable that might be considered to represent classroom assessment practice is the use of teacher-made tests, which in this case had a negative relationship with student achievement. That is, the more use of classroom testing, the lower was student accomplishment. Given these facts, it's very difficult to see how this study legitimately supports advocates' efficacy claims. The last frequently cited source I'll mention is by Kluger and Denisi, called The Effects of Feedback Interventions on Performance, a historical review, a meta-analysis, and a preliminary feedback intervention theory. This is a real meta-analysis of a large number of studies in a very high-quality journal focused on one topic relevant to formative assessment, feedback, and in that sense far more focused than the very broad range of the Black and William Review. Still, this article covers a lot of ground. 
summarizing studies using a very wide variety of educational as well as occupational outcome measures. Across these many studies, Kluger and Denise found the mean effect size of 0.41, less than the much larger effects often claimed for formative assessment. They also found that 38% of the effects were negative, meaning that the control condition was more effective in a notable number of cases than whatever it was that constituted the feedback intervention. Certainly, some of these negative effects might be attributed to practices theoretically inconsistent with formative assessment. For example, feedback directed toward the person rather than toward the task performance. However, the relationship of feedback to learning is in reality very complicated and not all that well understood. So the types of feedback associated with formative assessment cannot merely by assertion be uniformly equated with positive impact. As Valerie Shute observes in her 2008 review, the specific mechanisms relating feedback to learning are still mostly murky with few, if any, general conclusions. In short, then, the research does not appear to be as unequivocally supportive of formative assessment practice as it's sometimes made to sound. Given that fact, how might we improve the quality of the claims we make for the effectiveness of formative assessment? I've already implied that being a bit more careful in our assertions would not be a bad thing. I've also stated that clear definition, including a conceptual framework, a theory of action, and a concrete instance is essential to helping us abstract a well-defined class of things to study and make claims about. In this respect, the theory of action is particularly important because without it, we can't meaningfully evaluate the underlying mechanisms that are supposed to cause the intended claims. Empirical support for these underlying mechanisms, I would argue, is essential to being able to make strong claims. The theory of action postulated for KLT is particularly instructive because if you look at it carefully, it perhaps unintentionally obscures a key underlying mechanism. The circled box indicates that teachers elicit evidence of student learning minute by minute and day by day. What makes something an assessment is not only that evidence is elicited, but that inferences are made based upon that evidence. In this case, inferences about what students know and can do that then become the basis for adjusting instruction. That distinction between making evidence-based inferences and subsequently adjusting instruction is critical. It's critical because a failure in either step can reduce the effectiveness of formative assessment. If the inferences about students resulting from formative assessment are wrong, the basis for adjusting instruction is totally undermined. Similarly, if the inferences are correct, but the instruction is adjusted inappropriately, learning is also less likely to occur. Focusing on these two components of the theory of action suggests that to be considered effective, formative assessment requires at least two types of argument. It requires a validity argument to support the quality of the inferences about students and the adjustments to instruction. And it requires an efficacy argument to support the impact of the inferences and adjustments. Either argument on its own is not enough, and both require backing, both logical and empirical. The validity argument essentially asserts 
that formative assessment facilitates inferences about student strengths and weaknesses and helps in making related instructional adjustments. That argument must offer backing for the reasonableness of those inferences and adjustments. For example, that the resulting inferences and adjustments are similar to those that an expert teacher would make from the same evidence for a given student. The efficacy argument asserts that the use of formative assessment improves students' knowledge and skills, and that this improvement is caused by actions the teacher or student takes based on assessment inferences. Otherwise, why observe and judge student behavior at all? This argument also must offer backing for those knowledge and skill gains, for example, through empirical research, comparing formative assessment to some alternative treatment. Without both a validity and efficacy argument, then, strong claims for the effectiveness of formative assessment become very difficult to justify. In conceptualizing these arguments, however, a reasonable question is whether formative assessment programs like KLT can produce valid inferences and affect maximum learning gains without a specific substantive focus. That question raises our third issue, the domain issue. This issue concerns whether formative assessment can be maximally effective if theory and development are focused at a domain-independent level. To place the issue in context, we know from cognitive science that general and specialized knowledge work in close partnership. By themselves, domain-independent strategies like breaking up a complex problem into smaller parts, are broadly useful but weak, serving mostly in handling relatively routine problems. Similarly, domain-specific knowledge is powerful, but it's very brittle. On its own, such knowledge is effective only under very constrained conditions. When the nature of the problem changes such that the bounds of the domain are breached, that knowledge by itself is no longer sufficient. In that case, general strategies come in very handy. Following this reasoning, to be maximally effective, formative assessment requires the interaction of general principles, strategies, and techniques like those in KLT with deep cognitive domain understanding. That is, understanding of the processes, the strategies, and knowledge important for a proficiency in a domain, that is, the domain that's being taught and learned, of the habits of mind that characterize the community of practice in that domain, and of the features of tasks that engage those elements. This claim has at least two important implications. The first is that a teacher with weak cognitive domain understanding is less likely to know what questions to ask of students, what to look for in their performance, what inferences to make from that performance about student knowledge, and what actions to take to adjust instruction. The second implication is that the specifics of formative assessment may differ significantly from one domain to the next, because the intellectual tools and the instrumentation we give to teachers ought to be specifically tuned to the domain in question. A possible approach to dealing with the domain issue is to conceptualize and instantiate formative assessment within the context of specific domains. Such an instantiation could include a cognitive domain model to guide the substance of formative assessment, learning progressions to indicate steps toward mastery on key components of that domain model, 
tasks to provide evidence of student standing, techniques tuned to the substantive area specifically, and a formative assessment process suited to those materials and to that particular domain. Let's play this idea out very briefly for the domain of reading using an example created by my colleagues Kathy Sheehan and Heather Nadelman. Our cognitive domain model would indicate that one key component of proficiency is the ability to use and understand text conventions for various genres like persuasive, literary, and informative text, and that this understanding progresses along a continuum. Such a progression for the literary text element of plot might be determine the basic idea of plot, identify key plot elements, and understand how events related to the plot advance the author's goals. This is a progression in the sense that students might typically be expected to master the first of those before the second and the third. We can then provide tasks that include examples of literary text, for example, and questions that tentatively place each student with respect to that learning progression. In addition, we can give teachers domain-specific techniques for gathering further evidence. For example, graphic organizers to be completed by students for literary text that the teacher assigns. This approach implies that formative assessment should be essentially curriculum embedded. But how tightly linked formative assessment must be to a given curriculum is unresolved. It may be workable, for instance, to provide formative assessment materials for the key ideas or core understandings in a domain. That would leave teachers to apply either weaker domain general strategies to the remaining topics or working through their teacher learning communities, create their own formative materials using the provided ones as models. The fourth issue I'd like to briefly address is the measurement issue. A very basic definition of educational measurement is that it involves the following four activities. Designing opportunities to gather evidence in keeping with some purpose, collecting the evidence, interpreting it, and acting on those interpretations. The formative assessment literature gives far too little attention to that third activity, in particular to the fundamental principles surrounding the connection of evidence to interpretation. Formative assessment, like all educational measurement, is an inferential process because we can't know with certainty what understanding exists inside a student's head. We can only make conjectures based on what we observe from such things as class participation, classwork, homework, and test performance. Backing for the meaning of our conjectures is stronger to the extent we observe reasonable consistency in student behavior across multiple sources, occasions, and contexts. Thus, each teacher-student interaction becomes an opportunity for posing and refining our conjectures or hypotheses about what a student knows and can do, where he or she needs to improve, and what might be done to achieve that change. In her classroom assessment chapter from the fourth edition of Educational Measurement, Laurie Shepard touches on this idea, which I call a formative hypothesis. She writes, I see a strong connection between formative assessment practices and my training as a clinician when I used observation to form a tentative hypothesis 
gathered evidence, gathered additional information to confirm or revise, and planned an intervention, itself a working hypothesis. Michael Caine, in the validation chapter from the same volume, echoes the idea. By examining student work, the teacher can form hypotheses about the student's competencies and about gaps in understanding. If a particular set of conjectures does account for the student's pattern of performance, including mistakes, and no plausible alternative hypothesis does as well, the proposed conjectures can be accepted as a reasonable conclusion about the student. The role of the formative hypothesis becomes quite clear when we think about the distinctions among errors, slips, misconceptions, and lack of understanding. An error is what we observe a student to make. It's some difference between a desired performance and what a student provides. The error we observe, however, may have one of several underlying causes. Among other things, that error could be the result of a slip, that is a careless procedural mistake. It could be due to a misconception, some persistent conceptual or procedural confusion. Or it could be caused by a lack of understanding, a missing bit of conceptual or procedural knowledge without any persistent confusion. Each of these causes implies a very different instructional action, from minimal feedback for the slip to reteaching for the lack of understanding to the significant investment that may be required to engineer a deeper cognitive shift for the misconception. The key point, however, is that any attribution of underlying cause is an inference, a formative hypothesis that can be tested through further assessment. For example, by asking the student's explanation as to why he or she chose to respond in a particular way, thereby making the student a partner in formative assessment, or by administering more tasks and looking for a pattern of responses consistent with the hypothesis, or by relating the error to other examples of the student's performance, or by doing all three. It's worth noting that the generation and testing of hypotheses about student understanding is made stronger to the extent that the teacher has a well-developed cognitive domain model. Such a model can help direct an iterative cycle in which the teacher observes behavior, formulates hypotheses about the causes of incorrect responding, probes further, and revises those initial hypotheses. In addition, if the underlying model is theoretically sound, it can help the teacher discount student responding that may be no more than potentially misleading noise. For instance, slips that have no deep formative meaning. We can then make formative assessment more principled from a measurement perspective by recognizing that our characterizations of students are inferences and that by their very nature, inferences are uncertain. We can tolerate more uncertainty when the consequences of error are low and the decisions we're making based on them are reversible, which is certainly true of formative contexts. That said, the more certain we are, the more effectively we can adjust instruction. Why spend the time trying to correct a deep-seated misconception when the error was simply due to a procedural slip? So we should try our best to decrease uncertainty 
by considering data from multiple sources, occasions, and contexts where it's practical to do so, and by using cognitive domain models to guide the formative hypothesis testing cycle. To this point in the talk, we've touched upon definitional, effectiveness, domain, and measurement issues. Now we move briefly to ensuring that teachers have the knowledge and skill needed to carry out formative assessment. If you're at all familiar with the literature, you'll know that much of it conceptualizes formative assessment as an activity essentially rooted in pedagogical knowledge. That is, as simply the process of good teaching. I've argued that such a conceptualization also needs to include deep domain understanding and a knowledge of measurement fundamentals. My claim, in essence, is that a subset of these is not likely to work. If that claim is true, how can we best develop teachers' formative assessment practice? A key question in this regard is whether the components can be effectively addressed semi-independently. For example, KLT focuses on the pedagogical knowledge aspect of formative assessment. In KLT, formative assessment, pedagogical knowledge is connected to domain understanding through these teacher learning communities. But it's unlikely that deep domain understanding is going to be developed if it's not already there, because it's not incorporated into the program. Similarly, measurement fundamentals presumably come from some other source if they're addressed at all. The KLT approach may well be a sensible one from a practical perspective, trying to develop pedagogical knowledge, deep domain understanding, and measurement fundamentals may be more than any one professional development program can be expected to deliver. At the least, pre-service teacher education has a critical role to play in developing a firmer foundation upon which in-service programs like KLT can subsequently build. A related issue is time. Even if we can't find a practical way to help teachers build these different types of knowledge and skill, they need significant time. They need time to put that knowledge, skill, and understanding into practice. For example, time to learn to use or adapt purposefully constructed domain-based formative assessment materials. Such materials might include, for example, items, integrated task sets, projects, diagnostic tests, and observational and, and interpretive guides. Teachers also need time to reflect upon their experiences with these materials. If we can get teachers to engage in an iterative cycle of use, reflection, adaptation, and eventual creation of their own materials, all firmly rooted in meaningful cognitive domain models, we may have a potential mechanism for helping teachers better integrate the process and methodology of formative assessment with deep domain understanding. The last issue may be the most challenging of all. It's the system issue. The system issue refers to the fact that formative assessment exists within a larger educational context. If that context is to function effectively in educating students, its components need to be internally coherent in that formative and summative assessment are aligned with one another and externally coherent in the sense that formative and summative assessment are consistent with accepted theories of learning 
as well as with socially valued learning outcomes. If these two types of coherence are not present, components of the system will either work against one another or against larger societal goals. A common reality in today's educational systems, however, is that for practical reasons, summative tests are relatively short and predominantly take the multiple choice or short answer format. Almost inevitably, those tests will measure a subset of the intended curriculum, omitting important processes, strategies, knowledge, and habits of mind that can't be assessed efficiently in that fashion. Also, almost inevitably, classroom instruction and formative assessment will follow suit. They will be aligned to that subset. And as a consequence, the potential of formative assessment to effect a deeper change will be significantly reduced. Thus, the effectiveness of formative assessment will be limited by the nature of the larger system in which it is embedded, and particularly by the content, format, and design of the accountability test. Ultimately, we have to change the system, not just the approach we take to formative assessment, if we want to have maximum impact on learning and and instruction. Changing the system means remaking our accountability tests, and remaking our accountability tests is a very big challenge indeed. Let me summarize the main points. First, the term formative assessment does not yet represent a well-defined set of artifacts or practices. To me, a meaningful definition requires a conceptual framework, a theory of action, and concrete instantiation. When we have those things, we have something useful to implement and to study. One of the key contributions of keeping learning on track, I think, is that it's moved us toward such a definition. We need more work of that type, work which attempts to define very precisely a given category of formative assessment. Second, a judicious interpretation of the effectiveness research would be that the general practices associated with formative assessment can, under the right conditions, facilitate learning. However, the benefits may vary very widely from one implementation to the next and from one subpopulation of kids to the next. Just look at the research on feedback, one type of formative assessment practice, for an example of this wide variation. Also, with respect to effectiveness, commonly made quantitative claims for the efficacy of formative assessment are suspect, to say the least. The most commonly cited effect size claim of 0.4 to 0.7 standard deviations is not meaningful as a representation of the impact of a single well-defined class of treatments, nor is it traceable to any inspectable empirical source that I am aware of. Other empirical sources are dated, unpublished, critically flawed, or show smaller effects than advocates cite. Finally, generally absent are the validity argument and backing to support it, which should logically be key to any formative assessment theory of action. As a consequence, we need to be more responsible in our claims about this innovation. Third, rooting assessment in pedagogical skills alone is probably insufficient. Rather, formative assessment should be conceptualized and instantiated within specific domains. For example, in a recent issue of Applied Measurement in Education, Shavelson and his colleagues describe embedding formative assessment into a nationally used curriculum 
foundational approaches in science teaching. ETS's CBALL initiative, Cognitively Based Assessment of, For, and As Learning, which is attempting to create summative and formative assessments in keeping with cognitive domain models, would be another example, but one that is not quite as deeply embedded in curriculum. Fourth, formative assessment involves making inferences about what students know and can do. Therefore, formative assessment is assessment, at least in part. And if it is assessment, relevant measurement principles should figure centrally in its conceptualization and instantiation. That doesn't mean we should sacrifice validity for reliability, as some advocates fear, or that we should apply to formative assessment inappropriate psychometric concepts or methods intended for other assessment purposes. But it does mean we should incorporate rather than ignore the relevant fundamental principles. Fifth, teachers need substantial knowledge to implement formative assessment effectively in their classrooms. It's doubtful that the average U.S. teacher, at least, has that capability. So they also need substantial time and support to develop it. And they need useful classroom materials that model the integration of pedagogical domain and measurement knowledge. For example, developmentally sequenced tasks and interpretive materials that can help them make inferences about students and take actions that move students forward. Finally, we must account for the fact that formative assessment exists in an educational context. Ultimately, we have to rethink assessment as a coherent system in which formative assessment is a critical part, but not the only critical part. Thanks very much for your time and attention. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.